Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. Welcome to this special Halloween edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. In tonight's episode, we are celebrating Halloween in the Appalachian tradition. Fact is, our ancestors have been celebrating the holiday since before explorers even discovered the New World. Many of the traditions we have for Halloween predates the time of Christianity to the celebration of Samhain which was the ancient Celtic New Year. Samhain means end of summer. The final harvest was celebrated and a shift from warmth to the cold of winter. The Celts believed this time thinned the veil of life which souls pass through when they are born and when they die. They felt that the spirits of the dead could walk again among the living throughout this time. When Christianity spread through Europe, and Catholicism was the primary form of Christian spiritual practice, many of the original pagan holidays were transformed into Christian ones to make the new religion easier to adopt into their long-established culture. So at that time, Samhain became All Hallows' Eve, or All Saints' Day. Eventually, folks began to shorten the name to Halloween. And so, just like Christmas and Easter, a pagan tradition became a part of Christian practice. All Hallows' Eve began at sundown on October the 31st and lasted until sundown on November the 1st, when the next holiday, All Souls' Day, began. During this day, the living pray for the souls of the dead in purgatory. Our tradition of trick-or-treat comes from this holiday, Children would go from house to house collecting soul cakes, which were a simple bread and jam dessert. For every cake the children collected, they would say a prayer for the dead relatives of the person who gave them the cake. They believed the prayers could get the soul out of purgatory and into heaven. Our tradition of dressing up also came from the Celts and was transformed by the Catholic Church. As the Celts believed the spirits of the dead walked among the living during Samhain, the church believed the practice to be unchristian. The Catholics began to refer to these walking spirits as malicious and associated with Satan. To walk about at night and throughout the holiday, people began to dress as these evil creatures to confuse the spirits and stay out of their grasp. So while a number of Christians today struggle with whether or not they should celebrate Halloween, much of the ghostly and ghoulish imagery we have around the holiday comes directly from Christian adaptation. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where it was believed ghosts were as real as you or me. I asked for a bedtime story, and more often than not, what I got was a true ghost story. It also wasn't uncommon for the adults in our family to get a big kick out of scaring the living daylights out of us kids with pranks. For our first tale, we reach into Apple Shop and WMMT archives for a story shared with the late Buck Maggard by Edith Wright of Hayside, Virginia. Our own Buck Maggard is a good friend of Edith Wright who lives in Hayside, Virginia. 
Every once in a while, she takes a notion to spin a tale, and WMMT was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to record this scary childhood experience. Edith Wright grew up in Hayside, Virginia. She has become very well known recently as a storyteller. Her stories are usually about her own experience. Today she tells about the time her mother scared her with the old man with the gray beard. God bless my mother. She knew what I was telling her she'd kill me. <laughs> she'd kill me. She loved to scare us. They were about four of us then. And she loved dearly to scare us. And we were meaner than snakes ever thought about me. And down where we put a sign up down in Delano. No, we were we went up to Delano. We're going to put a sign up there. Uh, they had a big store there. And they had a, a dwelling house, and the same roof that was over the house was over the store, and there was a walkway up through there, and up to the end of this walkway was a, a dairy, and the dairy's still there, but it had a, a, a little bedroom built up over the, the dairy. And we would steal that stuff out of that store and take it up there in that little house, and we had a party every day. We uh, One of us would... My sister, would, she'd tell Mother, I stomp my toe, my toe's killing me. Mother would go, you know, and look at it, and I'd steal the pop and the cake out while she had Mother down, you know, and take it up there in that little house and, and get everything we needed, you know. And Mom would say, well, I can't see anything wrong with your with your foot. And I said, I know you need glasses. I know you do, you know. I don't know whether we've got forgiveness for that yet or not. But anyway... I guess my mother soon got, she, she decided she's going to have a little fun out, out of all the things we'd been doing. And my daddy was gone. My daddy would not let her scare us. But she dearly loved to scare us. Mary can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, one evening, kind of late, she had, uh, was, we thought, come to the house to fix us something to eat. And uh, she was fixing to close the store. And they had, uh, I don't remember if it was coffee they had up there in a case or whether it was sugar, but I believe it was sugar in boxes that they had scooted on that little bed. See, we had a playhouse up there. We had a little bed up there and a table and everything up there because we spent a lot of time up there eating things that we'd steal down there out of the store. Any time of the day we'd take notion we wanted something to eat. See, we'd figure she didn't go somewhere or another to steal it out. So, uh, and kept all of her papers and everything cleaned up so she couldn't, but she still knew what we was doing. And she said, I need you all to, said, I need you, uh, Edith, to run upstairs and, and in the, she called it the dairy loft. And she said, and get me a box of sugar right fast. Well, I never thought, here I go, and I've got my sister on my hip and, uh, my other sister and my brother was following along behind, and we didn't have any steps up there. We had a board that came out from the from the door of that and out on the hill, you know, and we'd walk that plank, you know, and get in and get out. Ran up there, and it was real late, but she had not milked a cow. So went up there and uh, reached down under the bed and got in that case and got the sugar out and raised up and saw this old man laying there in that bed. He had a big old white beard. And he had the covers all fixed up like that, you know, and looked like he was dying, you know, and he looked horrible. And we all saw it about the same time. I don't know what happened to the sugar, 
But out there we come, and we was all trying to come on that board at one time to get out of there, you know. And I dropped my sister and heard her, and she was screaming, you know, and I picked her up and put her back on my hip. Mother was standing down there in the door, and we passed her right by, you know, and she's trying to holler at us, and she was dying laughing, and she couldn't say nothing. She was laughing, and tears were pouring down her face. I'll never forget that. And right down through there we went, right up the road we went, and we were plumb to the barn before she ever stopped us. And she said, come on, we're not going back to that house no more. We're not going to live down there in that house. We're going up there to live with Miss Turner. We're not going to stay down there no more. And she had the office time getting us back down there, promised us everything, got us back down there, and she had not gone to milk. And we always had things to do while she went to milk, so she got the milk buckets, and here we was going to, you know. We went to milk for about five or six days with her, every morning and night. We didn't leave. She did not get out of our sight. We was right behind her, you know. So she, I don't, she bought me, was going to buy me a necklace if I didn't tell Daddy about her scaring us, you know. And uh, she was buying for all of us, you know, getting us all things. And, and right back then, you hardly ever got bologna. Just once in a while, you saw bologna, you know. And Daddy had a big, long roll of bologna in there. And she said, uh, I tell you, and we loved bologna, you know. She said, we're not going to eat in the house this week no more. She said, we're going to eat out here. We'll eat bologna. Everything, she's doing everything for us, you know. And we were still just scared to death, you know. Well, Daddy came home, and uh, she would make these old things you call horses' heads. I don't know if anybody's ever seen them, but I could be scared of them today and look at them. But she'd take a sheet and take the corner and stuff it in. You know how she made them with the eyes and the nose and everything. And then she had a fork and six C, and, and it, she took a sheet and made it. And then you get under that sheet and hide yourself. You look like, and you take that stick and you can turn that head any way you want to, you know. <laughs> and I'm telling you the truth, she was scared to death with that thing, you know. Well, Daddy came home, and she had a great big stack of quilts, and she had this old horse's head in there beside the quilt stack with the sheet put around it, you know, and he found it. And so he got on to her. He said, you've been scaring those kids. I said, he's been scaring us to death with with old men with uh, beards on the face. Daddy thought somebody had been there, you know. <laughs> so he was about to take the top of the house off and come, but she got the little end of it. I'm telling you, she did. I, that's the last time I can ever remember my mother ever scaring us other, other than she'd say, I hear something. Oh, brother, listen. Or something like that, you know. We paid no attention to that. Lord God, we was getting big enough that we could fight anything that come along then. Storyteller Eda Pratt of Dickinson County, Virginia. For Mountain News and World Report, I'm Buck Maggard. I'm in heaven. Holding the game and the one more straight. The old graders are flapping. Mom and Tom on the door, and I wouldn't have it. Hope the door and fell for the old radar to flap Mom and Tom said, Mature, I wouldn't have it. Mom and Tom, I wouldn't have it. Then 
Lemon pot and smoke last night, don't bring everybody. Mom and Tom said, Mother's too, I wouldn't have it. Some of the tunes are like food, you're a dirty fatty. Mom and Tom think about the dead, I wouldn't have it. Think about the dead, but they act like dead, you're a dirty fatty. Just as parents seem to have always gotten a laugh out of scaring the little ones, it's true that just about every Appalachian grandparent I knew spread no small part of the family history to the younger generations through ghost stories. These mountains were early inhabited by a myriad of peoples with varying spiritual beliefs, so it's no surprise that so many of these stories are told as first-hand experiences. The next story we'll hear is a family tale from WMMT DJ and contributor Rich Kirby. Well, this is Rich Kirby, and I'd like to pass on a story. It's not exactly a ghost story, but it's a story out of my family history, and one that people always tell, seems like, when people get together. Like all of these, this is a true story, and it happened a few years before I was born, in 1939. My mother's family is from Breathitt County, and they had a home place on uh, Frozen Creek near Van Cleve. And in the spring of 1939, my, my grandmother's mother and sister, everybody called her Grandma Prater, she and her daughter, my grandmother's sister, were living out there. And Grandma Prater sat down and wrote all of her children a letter. I saw the, one time I saw the letter that she wrote to my mother. She wanted them to know that she had had a dream and that in her dream, her husband, who had been dead for some years, had come to her and talked to her and said, I'm coming to get you on the 4th. And she just understood by that that he meant the 4th of July and that, that she was probably going to pass away on that day. And she wasn't at all distressed about that, uh, She just, but she just wanted the family to know. Well, on the day, uh, it was just an ordinary day, and uh, she and her daughter and some other family members, cousins, all went across the creek, and they were visiting a, a neighbor family and sat out until pretty late at night, sitting out in the yard, telling, talking and singing hymns and so on. And as they were leaving to go back to the house, somebody said, Well, uh, Lonnie said, um, Fourth is just about gone. Nothing's happened yet. And she turned back to him and said, The Lord is never a minute too late or a minute too soon, and went on back to the house. And now it was not, technically speaking, on the 4th of July, but a few hours later, uh, before dawn, there was a huge flash flood. There had been an enormous rainstorm up uh, around the head of the creek, and a wall of water came pounding down the creek and carried away houses and, and churches and a school and killed 76 people. This is something that's you know, you won't find this really in the history books, but you can certainly see it covered extensively in the newspapers at that time, and my family sure remembers this. Um, but my grandmother's mother and sister were carried away in that flood, and, and in fact, 
I guess he did come together on the fourth. The next piece has been passed down four generations through Gwen Johnson's family. It's a testament to the impact these stories can have on living memory. Gwen is from Neon, Kentucky. My great-grandma, her name was Elizabeth Johnson, and she was a healer and went, you know, from place to place as she was needed when people were sick. And my grandmother always told me that in every epidemic or whatever, that there were some people exempted from diseases so that they could nurse the other ones. And she believed that that was who we are. And so my granny, it was during an epidemic that took place in the uh, last part of the 1800s. And she had went to this family's house, and the mother had died that day, and the father lay gravely ill, and one baby was in a cradle, and it was really sick. And Granny had went there to help nurse him, and it was a full moon night, and she was sitting looking out the window, and the graveyard where they had buried the mommy that day was out on the hill out from them. And she was sitting looking out the window toward the graveyard, and she started seeing this white, milky-looking apparition raising up out of the grave. And she's sitting watching, and I'm sure, you know, she thought she was seeing things. And uh, it just kept raising up, and then it started floating down the hill toward the house. Back at that time, they had latch strings that were attached to a drawbar on the inside of the door. And so it came gliding up to what was the door, and Granny lost sight of it because she was looking out the window. And when it had time to about get to the door, the latch string had been drawn in that night because at night they'd draw in the latch string that would keep anybody from the outside being able to open the door. But the boat flew up of its own accord, and the door swung open, and this apparition floated into the room and just floated over to the cradle. And the only sound that uh, she said that had been in the house was the raspy breathing because they were really close to death. So the, what the old people called the death rattles was the only thing that she, you know, that she was able to hear because this old house was in the head of a holler in the middle of nowhere. So when the apparition floated into the room, it went over to the cradle that Granny was rocking with the toe of her boot. You know, she'd just been sitting there looking out the window, just kind of rocking that cradle to keep that baby satisfied. And ever, ever so often she'd wet their lips with a rag or whatever, but they were real close to death. And when the mother came in, she went over to the cradle and bent down and kissed the baby and just raised back up and went back through the door and the door swung shut and the boat dropped in place. And Granny watched her go back to the graveyard and float right back down into the grave. And when she floated back into the grave, Granny noticed there wasn't any sound and both of them had stopped breathing. Gwen shared that tale with the makers of Shoe Buddy, Higher Ground Radio, which airs on WMMT every second Wednesday of the month 
at 6 p.m. My grandmother, Barbara Johnson Mullins Fletcher, grew up around Neon too. She'd tell me a story of her being a little girl on the porch swing at her Mamaw Stevens' house on Goose Creek. This would have been sometime in the late 1930s, early 40s. As she swung there, she saw a ball of fire rise up from the ground in the graveyard across from the house. She was too curious to alert anyone about it. The ball of fire rolled down the hill, and, as it did, it grew bigger. It kept coming, and by the time it reached the bottom of the hill, it was big enough to swallow a whole person. The fireball crossed the road and came toward her grandmother's fence. It reached the gate, and when it did, it changed into two people, a man and a woman. My Mimi didn't recognize them, but she noticed she could see through them. The man opened the gate and let the woman enter first. They came up the rock walkway and reached the front porch steps. Just as the woman stepped onto the bottom step, they both disappeared. When my Mimi described the couple to her mamaw later on, her mamaw told her it must have been her great-grandparents walking as ghosts. Another thing us Appalachian folks liked to do was document our big happenings and tragic events in the form of a ballad. The most famous of these ballads are the murder ballads. After a short news break, you will hear George Gibson's Knott County, Kentucky version of Pretty Polly, the most popular of them all, from his last Possum Up the Tree album on the June Apple label. But first... This news from the Ohio Valley Resource. Polling in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Southern Ohio shows billionaire Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump enjoys strong support from the region's white working class, an often overlooked group of voters. This angry election season has caused many writers to focus on the deep discontent among white workers. Jeff Young spoke with three authors about why the white working class has such a dark outlook on the country's future. One look at the titles in my local bookstore and I knew something was up. White trash, white rage, hillbilly elegy. Writers are taking a new, some would say overdue, look at the white working class. Robert P. Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute uses demographics to explain what he calls the end of white Christian America. If we go back just two election cycles ago to 2008, when Barack Obama was first running for president, uh, the country was a solidly majority white Christian country. 54% of the country identified as white and Christian in 2008. That number today from our latest surveys is 43%. And with that really passing from the scene, that that sense of anxiety and dislocation uh, was actually underneath uh, what was fueling so many of our of our debates. So do you see what you're describing there playing out in the Trump campaign and Trumpism? Well, Donald Trump has essentially converted uh, these values voters into, uh, I've argued, into nostalgia voters. His slogan, this kind of make America great again, um, that last word again uh, really does harken back, I think, to a time when white Christian churches and people had much more power in the culture than they have today. 
In Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance draws on personal experience in small-town Ohio and Kentucky. It's a searing account of a childhood amid the chaos of addiction and abuse, challenges Vance says outside observers don't fully appreciate. And if I wanted to show people what those problems really looked like, there wasn't a better way for, than for me to open up my own life and my own family and say, look, this is what it looks like when you're really struggling to get ahead. We spoke via Skype. Vance told me he thinks a lot of rural Americans are voting out of a sense of despair. Folks are really struggling with heroin. Um, families are breaking down, increasing mortality rates and so forth. They don't believe anymore in the promise of the American dream. They don't believe that hard work can connect them to better opportunities because they just don't believe that no matter what they do, that they're going to have a better life. That feeling isn't made up. It doesn't come from nowhere. And so I do think that there's an important element of despair. But historian Nancy Eisenberg cautions that Vance's personal story can put too much emphasis on individual choice over structural problems. Blaming it on family dysfunction, blaming it on drug addiction, misses that these are rooted in economic dislocation. Eisenberg's book, White Trash, shows poor Americans have repeatedly been ridiculed and blamed for their own misfortune. We really begin to see this focus on how they are a group of people who have so many defects that somehow they can never be assimilated into normal society. And this is a really important argument. This is how Americans can ignore a class. If you claim that no education, no charity is actually going to help uplift these people because of their derelict ways, essentially then you can write them off. And Eisenberg sees quite a bit of that attitude on display today in media depictions of rural Southern and Appalachian voters. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Jeff Young in Louisville. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, oh, yonder she stands. Polly, pretty Polly, oh, yonder she stands. Gold rings on her fingers and lily white hands. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Lord, afore we get married, some pleasure to see. Oh, he led her over mountains and valleys so deep. Led her over mountains and valleys so deep. Polly, pretty Polly, Lord, she began to weep. Stan Willie. Oh, dear Willie, I'm feared of your way. Willie, oh, dear Willie, I'm feared of your way. Lord, I'm feared you will lead my poor body astray. Oh, he led her little father, and what did they spy? 
let her a little farther, and what did they spy? But a newly dug grave with a spade lying by. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, you guessed just about right. Polly, pretty Polly, you guessed just about right. Lord, I dug on your grave the best part of last night. She fell to her knees and pleaded for her life. Fell to her knees and pleaded for her life. Oh, let me be a single girl for the rest of my life. Stabbed her to the heart, and the heart's blood did flow. Stabbed her to the heart, and the heart's blood did flow. Into the grave, pretty Polly did go. Well, he threw a little dirt over her and started for home. Threw a Started for home, leaving nothing behind but the wild birds to moan. Now dead. To the devil, oh, well, he must play. Dead to the devil, oh, well, he must pay. For a killing pretty Polly, then running away. That was George Gibson playing his rendition of Pretty Polly, probably the most well-known of the many Appalachian murder ballads. You can find George Gibson's album Last Possum Up the Tree on the June Apple recording label online at appleshop.org. That's A-P-P-A-L shop.org. You're listening to a special Halloween edition of Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. Ghost tales have been an integral part of the culture of Appalachia from the very beginning, and not just during Halloween. They've been used to document family history, tragic events, as a warning to keep children safe, and as multi-generational connection. In the next segment, WMMT Vistas and Letcher County residents Callie Lee, Eric King, and Katie Paratina 
read ghost tales told so often that they were documented and published. In the 1930s, the coal mining community of Harlan County in Kentucky saw some of the most intense and violent labor disputes in U.S. history. The years of violence directed against the workers who were fighting to unionize earned the county the nickname of Bloody Harlan. On Black Mountain, the spirit of a murdered child haunts the hills as a reminder of the bravery and sacrifice of those violent days. In the 1930s, mining companies held the power in Appalachian coal fields, often providing the only steady employment in the regions that were still in many ways cut off from the outside world. They used their power to ruthlessly exploit the workers. Working conditions in the mines were horribly unsafe. Those that survived the mines could expect to be thrown aside with broken bodies and blackened lugs at a relatively young age, with no pension to keep him and his family going. Under these conditions, workers had no choice but to unionize and fight for their rights. But the mining companies also owned the governments, even at a state level. Attempts to unionize were met with intimidation and outright violence by local authorities. When the miners still fought back, hired thugs were brought in to terrorize the miners and their families. The story of Headless Annie is the story of one of those miners and of his family. The legend says that this miner was leading the unionization efforts at a mine near Black Mountain. The miners were ready to declare a strike, and the company was furious at his success and terrified of losing their absolute power, and so they brought in their own deputies to put it into the growing organization. The company men waited until until night, dragged the sleeping union organizer, his wife, and their young daughter out of bed. They were bound, gagged, thrown into the back of a truck, and driven to the top of Black Mountain. They threw the family to the ground and dragged their father over to the base of a tall tree. One of the men produced a meat hook and a rope. He threw the hook over a high branch in the tree. The father's bound hands were forced into the hook, and he was hauled to the top of the tree. The company men wanted him to have a good view of what they were about to do. The horrified organizer watched as the men dragged his struggling wife out onto the ground. They tortured and brutalized her right in front of him, saying, This is what happens when you start a union. When they had finished, one of the company men took an axe from the truck and cut off the poor woman's head. They tossed her head off into the side of a ravine, laughing as they pushed her body down after it. And then, while he watched helplessly, the company men did the same thing to his child, Annie. The company men took one last opportunity to drive home their point, saying, This is what happens when you start a union, as they used the same axe that they had murdered his wife and daughter with to chop off the poor man's legs. They hauled him back up to the top of the tree and left him there to bleed to death as a warning of the power that the company held and the lengths that it would go to in order to keep it. The memory of that horrible night is seen when the spirit of Annie walks Black Mountain. The spirit of the young girl dressed in a white nightgown is often seen on the road that runs over the mountain, right by the spot where the killings happened. Some people say she will run out in front of cars, as if trying to stop and warn them. Sometimes she is said to appear in the back seat as they drive past. But wherever she is seen, there is one unmistakable feature about the ghost child. The figure of the young girl has no head. Several years ago, after I had rented a place in this community, imagine my surprise to hear reports on all sides that the place was haunted. It was said that the building's foundation had been built by a certain man who built a filling station, apparently for the purpose of furnishing power for cars. Instead, 
he had used it for furnishing spirits in the form of good old Mountain Dew. In the process, he was blown up. Following this incident, a man in white would appear at the exact place where the building had gone up in smoke. The occupants of the house which stood near related that the footsteps were often heard crossing the porch when no visitor could be seen. Not being of a superstitious nature, I paid these tales no mind and went ahead with my plans. Everything went smoothly for some time, except that one Sunday morning a gentleman came to purchase a bottle of strong drink because he had done so in the past. It took quite a bit of talking to persuade him that none was available. Not long afterwards, we were entertaining company, and I was in one door and my sister in another, when I heard supposedly someone crossing the porch. Naturally, I rushed to the door. In the meantime, my sister had heard the same footsteps, so we reached the door about the same time. No one was in sight, and we were not quite so sure that they were haunts. But several times in the future, similar incidents happened. One morning, a girl appeared at my back door asking for something to eat. She was on her way to Pikeville by her thumb. I invited her inside. While the coffee perked, footsteps moved across the floor of the front room. My first intuition was that she had a companion who would block the front while she would block the rear. I rushed to the front, planning to slide a bolt on the inside of the front door to cut off the entrance that way, since my only way of escape would be by way of dining room window, which lay between the two doors. However, she evidently had not played any tricks, as there was no one at the front door, just a repetition of false footsteps. As the time passed, the footsteps did not come so frequently, and I even mustered enough courage to spend one night alone. Although, I wouldn't go so far as to say my slumber was of the smoothest. Until this day, I can't explain the why or how of the footsteps. Along about 1920, I was hauling staves in McGoffin County for a stave mill company. Me and about 15, 20 other fellows was doing this. We would wagon the staves out, and it took us about two days to make the trip to the railroad station. I lived about halfway along the road, so it took about one day to go each way. One morning, we all went to the stave mill and got a load, and we were coming down Lake Branch, there in McGoffin County, on the Middle Fork River. So it was all coming around the face of the hill. There was wagons in front of me and wagons in the back of me, some 25 yards away from me each way. The wind was a-blowing, and it was in the middle of spring this year. The wind was blowing straight across from where we was coming around the hill, and there was a bottom and a creek. And across from the bottom in the creek was this graveyard, looked to be about 25 or 30 graves. Two of these graves had little houses over them. One was checked off with narrow white strips and had been painted, and the other one looked to have been sealed solid, both covered. The one that seemed to be solid, the door on it came open and stood back wide open, plumb back. The wind was blowing, but the door stood still, and there was a large woman, fleshy-like, about 175 pounds, dressed in black. She was at the back end of the little house, but she kept coming forward and then stood in the door. She was dressed in black, with a black ribbon tied around her waist in a big bow, and the end of the ribbon went down to near the bottom of her dress tail. This little ribbon was blowing back and forwards, and then she stood there something like 25 minutes. I kept my eye on her, didn't take my eye off to amount to anything. She began to disappear. She was going to the back of the little house, disappearing. She disappeared right into the back of the building. When she got out of sight, then the door went to close. I never did see that anymore, but still hauled staves past there in later months. She went upstairs to make her Mother said, 
banjo player Buell Kazee with The Butcher's Boy from his album on the June Apple label. Butcher's Boy is an American folk song that meld several old English love ballads to create a new song. I learned the song from my Aunt Sharon and she taught it to me as The Railroad Boy. Another of our fine old tunes says it best, this is a short life of trouble. But on Halloween, mischief is made for fun or a little sweet revenge. Both of my grandmothers told me stories of causing all sorts of trouble on what we call corn night. For us, it was always the night before Halloween, when trees were filled with toilet paper, windows were soaked, and water balloons were dropped from high places. For my grandmothers, corn night was quite literal. They threw seed corn at houses and passing cars, They'd light fire to paper bags of dog poo on front porches and turn over outhouses. Serious business there. We always laughed so hard at those stories. So to end our celebration, we include two more stories from Edith Wright telling of her childhood mischief. You know, they say kids are bad these days. Yeah, right. Listening to Dickinson County storyteller Edith Wright is always a treat. Recently, she came to visit WMMT as a guest on our Mountain Talk program. Buck Maggard hosted the show. 
Edith Wright is a storyteller from Dickinson County, Virginia. She recently visited with me on Mountain Talk and shared some of her experiences she had while growing up in Hayside, Virginia during the Depression years. My daddy, uh, over across the creek from where we lived, was two sugar trees over there. And he had two little spouts out on them and had buckets on them. That's when we first started up the hill. And we were following this coal chute plumb to the top of the hill, and our intentions was to uh, ride back down in the in the chute. So we decided we'd get to see how much sugar water was there and went over there and checked that, and on one bucket there wasn't any, and another bucket there was about two swallows. <laughs> so we drank that, and my sister went down to the creek and got just about that much water and put back in there and hung it up. So Daddy wouldn't know that we had been messing with his... <laughs> sugar <laughs> trees well we went on up to the top and the sheep were all out and uh, so we decided that we wasn't going to walk back down there we was going to ride back down in that chute but we was something I don't know why we was a little bit leery but we decided to catch a little lamb and put in it and if it made it down why we know we can make it down we got this little chute and we put it in the in the we both caught it and we put it in the chute and down it went and just in a minute we could hear it hollering and oh lord god i know we's killed because i <clears throat> we could see mommy coming out of the store and standing on the porch and i told ed and i said we've had it today she wore us out got down there and little lamb fell out and she said uh, she called her names and she said come down here i want you to see the saddest sight I've ever seen in my life. And I said, God, we better not ride down that chute. I said, we better get down here, run, get down there and see. I said, if that lamb is dead, I said, we, we'll be dead too. So we got down there, and its ears was cut off. There was cuts all over it. The, its skin was skinned up, and it lived maybe 20 minutes after we got down there, and it died. And she said, well, she said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. She said, I'm not going to whip you. I'm going to wait till your daddy comes. I'm going to let this little lamb lay right here and let him see it. Well, by the time daddy come, it had swelled, and it looked terrible. It looked terrible to start out with, but Lord God, it looked terrible when he got there. He called us over there, and he said, uh, did, you, did you girls ride down with this, with this lamb? And he'd always asked a lot of crazy questions and we knew when he got through he was going to beat the very far out of us and uh, we told him that uh, it jumped in and that we couldn't help it getting in there and he said don't tell me that now he said I don't want no stories he said I want you just tell me the truth and I said well I said we were going to ride down daddy that's the main thing we were going to ride down and that's the only bit of the truth I guess that I told her and telling the whole thing and uh, he said you girls get your whole and you're going to dig a big, deep hole, and you're going to bury this little lamb. And he said, I'm going to show you where to dig it. And he, there wasn't a place in the United States any tougher to dig than where he put us at. We was all that evening and half the next day getting a hole big enough to put that little lamb in. And I told my sister, I said, it wasn't half this big yesterday. Here we, we was digging, and we dug almost that whole day to get that devilish lamb down in that hole. And Mommy said, you better hurry up. It's going to burst, and it's going to burst right <laughs> in your face. And that was that was terrible. And we we got its little legs, and we took 
picked it up and took it up and laid it down in it. And we had a little funeral service there for it. Mm -hmm. And I seen Mommy come with a big long switch. And I told Ed and I said, cut the service short right quick because there comes Mommy. <laughs> and so <laughs> we was covering it up. And I said, Mommy, please don't whip us. I said, we have, we have, we're so sorry that this happened. And we couldn't help it because that lamb jumped in that thing, that chute to come down. She said, tell you another line, I'll beat you dead. And so she said, I'm not going to whip you. I'm going to wait and let your daddy whip you. We promised daddy everything that could be thought about on this side of the ocean that we would be good and not do anything else. Well, the next week, we got by with that. The next week, the mailman come, and he always talking about his sweetbread being so good, so good. And we had an old horse that was on the other side of the fence from where he hitched his horse up at. We decided we was going to get in them saddlebags and get that sweetbread out and see what it was. <laughs> we got climbed the fence, and the little old saddlebags wasn't no bigger than that right there. But we didn't think. We didn't have sense enough to think. And so we got his sweetbread out and went down on the floor to eat it, and it wasn't a thing in the world but just a sweet biscuit. That's all it was. Just biscuits made with maybe add a little sugar to it. We didn't like it at all. We just we just set it back down under there. We didn't put it back in there. He came out to get his lunch. And he went back in and he told my mother. He said, you know what? He said, your horse stuck his head down in my saddlebags out there and got my lunch out. And he did it. <laughs> well, we thought that's a pretty good tale. That's what we'd tell. That but we didn't think the size of the of the his saddlebags wasn't no bigger than that. No way possible could a horse got his head down in that. But we had to wait and let Daddy tell us that. You see, Daddy come in that evening and yeah, but Mother, that's when Baloney first came in round where we were. And every day he would bring the mail in. He'd go back there and look at that big long uh, roll of Baloney, you know. And he'd ask Mother. He said, "What does that taste like? I bet that's good stuff." So she cut him a slab of that off that day and made him a sandwich out of it. And uh, when Daddy come in that evening, he said, uh, I need you girls to show me how that horse got his head down in them saddlebags. And I said, well, come right out here. We can show you all right. Still dumber than all get out and everything, you know. And so we, Daddy said, them saddlebags is real small. I said, how did he get his, his uh, head down in there? And I said, I don't know. I said, maybe just stuck it halfway down in there and <laughs> souped it up. <laughs> Daddy said, you know what? He said, you girls are telling a story. He said, you're telling a big story. He said, tomorrow, he said, you're going to start working, and you're going to work out enough money to buy that guy a good dinner. He said, I'm going to see to that. Well, they found plenty for us to do, and we were busy for about four days there. Mother seen that we didn't lose no time for nothing. We cleaned the yard. We cleaned out from under the floor. We 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 worked some in the house, and then when we wasn't working, we sat in there under her nose. She wouldn't let us out. Hayside was like the Wild West that you read about. And anybody that's my age or maybe a little older than I am can t could tell you the same thing. We had boardwalks. And it, you could hear it coming from one end of town to the other on those boardwalks. And we had a little room 
that we had we kept on a weekend because we'd have four and five schoolgirls would spend a weekend there with us. We only had one bus in Dickinson County at that time, and the girls that lived over in the mountain they they stayed usually on the weekends there, and they stayed with us. And we'd have as high as eleven girls spend a weekend with us, and we mother never said a thing about feeding them or anything. She they were welcome to what we had to eat. And I know one night the the bread man came to Hayside twice a week, and his name was George, and I don't know what his last name was. But we went to the kitchen, and there wasn't anything left from supper to eat. And I told my sister, I said, let's go down. You go downstairs and see if old George locked the bread truck. She went downstairs and come back, and she said, no. Now, Daddy and Mother had already gone to bed. And she said, no, said the bread truck's not locked. So we went down there. And we got out what we thought that 12 girls could eat. That took about three or four cakes and got some pies. Nickel uh, was nickel cakes then. Great big cakes was a nickel. We brought a load of that stuff up there. We put it under the bed so in case Daddy come in there, it wouldn't be in sight, you know. Yes. And we went in and got into Mother's milk. And we brought about two gallons of sweet milk in there. And we ate everything that we brought up there. And we were ready. Some of them as sick as could be, bombed them. The next morning, Daddy said, uh, did I hear somebody going down them steps last night? I said, it wasn't us. wasn't us. I said, some of them got sick back there. Daddy said, what did they get sick on? I said, we don't know. We don't know what they got sick on. He said, well, I'll guarantee you that you've been down in the store. But you had to go the back way to go down in the store. And <clears throat> I said, no, Daddy. I said, we wasn't out of that room. I said, we stayed right in there all night. He said, how did you sleep? And I said, well, we had two mattresses and went to bed, and we fixed us. Everybody had a place to sleep. Well, the next morning we got up there, and we got every piece of that candy paper up, every crumb that was left in the floor, we got it up. But meantime... My sister, Edna, she was meaner than a black snake. She went in the kitchen and got her a quart of water and brought it there. And you could, the porch run all the way across the front of the building upstairs. And uh, they had a big hotel down there. And a lot of guys would get up there and those settees and things and go to sleep and sleep till 1, 2 o'clock. Maybe be a little high and they was sleeping there. They're sleeping it off. And so we heard this old guy coming up the street, and he's thump, thump, thump on them uh, walks, boardwalks, you know. She got that quarter water and got out there, and <laughs> she waited to get right down on the porch, and she let him have it, poured right down on him. I never heard such cussing in all my life as, as he put it up. And here come Daddy. And right down the steps he went, and he told, oh, he said everything to that boy. And that boy said, somebody poured water on me. He said, get the hell up that road or I'll throw you in the river. <laughs> then he come in the room and he said, which one of you girls peed down there on that man? I said, what are you talking about? He said, now there's some water from somewhere come down there on that guy. I said, he didn't tell a lie. <laughs> but we never did tell him what happened. Edith Wright from Dickinson County, Virginia. For Mountain News and World Report, I'm Buck Maggart. That concludes this Halloween episode of Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, 
Kelly Haywood. Special thanks to Caroline Rubens from Archive and Tom Hansel for their help in digging up the Edith Wright tales. Also a huge thanks to all those who contributed stories. Be sure to catch the show again online or through your favorite podcast app. Visit us on www.wmmt.org. And from all of us at WMMT, Happy Halloween!